0: Welcome to the american reformer podcast promoting a vigorous christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day and rooted in the rich tradition of protestant social and political thought hosted by josh Abitoy and ben dunson okay welcome back to the american reformer podcast for the third time in a row i'm writing solo Josh Abatoy and Ben Dunson are still AWOL, and, uh, but I do have a guest again, um, or for the first time, but another guest. Uh, Scott Jenner is with us, and he's written several things for American Reformer that have gotten a lot of traction and attention. We're going to talk about a few of those, um, but Scott, I'll first let you introduce yourself, uh, where you are, what you do, where you're from. Well, thanks for up. having me on, team, and
1: I am from Wisconsin, Um, And I went and got my Ph.D. at Loyola University in Chicago in political science. I studied political philosophy, wrote my dissertation on David Hume and John Locke. I landed a job at Boise State University in 2000, and I've been there since then. I'm now a full professor. Uh, I also am affiliated with the Claremont Institute. Currently, I serve as what we call the senior director of state coalitions uh, at the Center for the American Way of Life in D.C., uh, and I'm stationed in Tallahassee part time. Uh, that's where I am coming from today.
0: Okay, very good. Senior Director of State Coalitions. So we'll get we'll get to your boogeyman status later. Um, it sounds very dangerous. Um, the initial initial thing we wanted to talk about though is the most recent thing you wrote for us, um, not even a month ago, into July, um, where you reviewed the for us, the um, republication of George Gilder's book uh, by Canon Press. Uh, I think it was originally published in 86, something like that, Men in Marriage. Um, so br- briefly give us an intro to Gilder and, and his thought and your your take on uh, that, because it was getting a lot of attention when Canon Press put it back out, a lot of Twitter traffic. Everyone was kind of talking about it and some a lot of us enc- encountering his ideas for the first yeah, time. Yeah,
1: I first ran into Gilder and read Gilder with his first book, Sexual Suicide, which was written in the early 70s, I think 72. And Men in Marriage is a, uh, a kind of repackaging of sexual suicide, came out in the mid 80s. Uh, and Gilder is a real polymath, you know, he is a real insightful technologist. Um, and he helped establish the discovery center, which is a foundation that's about intelligent design that is in Seattle. And he also has been in this gender theory lane for most of his career. And when I read his book, I was working on and really finishing up my second book on the family called the recovery of family life. And the thing that I found so persuasive and helpful in Gilder is that he agreed with me, of course, Timon, that he, uh, He (laughs) argued that that every political community has a kind of sexual constitution, a regime as it relates to the relationship between men and women. And he described how the modern feminist regime would have effects on men. And I think that there's no one more insightful on that than Gilder. And his basic take on that is – that if women don't need men for provision, then women will turn away from marriage themselves. And where will that leave men? And he thought it would leave men severely underemployed, purposelessness, purposeless and more and more interested in one-night-stand type sex than enduring relations. And it seemed that his diagnosis of how the particular feminist sexual constitution would work was really describing a lot of the world around us. And so I'm not going to call him a prophet or anything, but in both those books, Sexual Suicide and uh, uh, Men in Marriage, he really showed, I think, uh, the direction of modern family culture uh, as a result of the feminist constitution. And uh, so I think he deserves tons of honor for having been so prophetic in that particular lane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Is there any, uh, I did see, you know, on- online appreciation for exactly what you what you've articulated there in terms of his sort of prescience, there, there did seem to be criticisms from what I was saying of, of maybe how he described some of the male female relationships within marriage and sort of a civilizing function for men or these sorts of things. Um, so maybe even if his predictions were, were correct, his prescriptions were off in some way, what did, did, what's your take? Yeah. Yeah, I uh, think there's, there's
1: actually like a limit to his prophecy and a limit to his ultimate, Mm -hmm. uh, remedy. The, the, the difficulty that he has is that he doesn't describe how the feminists Constitution or the feminist sexual Constitution affects women. He almost acts as if the female character itself is a constant, unaffected by the sexual Constitution, whereas the male character is affected by the sexual Constitution. So he has a kind of dreamy vision of female virtue and uh, and without any corresponding vices. And that, of course is an incomplete analysis of our situation. Feminism has changed women just as much as, as it has changed men, and one has to come to grips with that. And specifically, he seems to imagine that women are, for the most part, looking for providers, and, um, and how, how else to put it, uh, have a constancy in their love that they may not actually have. That is, that they would, they're, they're loyal and that, like, liberalizing divorce laws, for instance, will loosen men from their relationship to women, but won't do any, or but won't affect women's relationship to men in the same way. And so, hmm. if, you, if you come to grips with how the old, old constitution that is before feminism was shaping women, like encouraging modesty, encouraging loyalty, encouraging motherhood, and then you see the woman under the feminist constitution has a different character, you can see that there's a limit to the, to the diagnosis. And without coming to terms with mm-hmm. that limit, with that particular way in which the feminist constitution works, Gilder's analysis is always going to be a little off kilter. And then the second, uh, and that affects the remedy because for Gilder, the way in which men can kind of find a place under the feminist constitution is if they submit themselves to the sexual superiority of women. Women are the creators of life, and if they, they, they mold their character, in the direction of submitting to long term sexual horizons of women, they will learn responsibility and become capable of greatness or something. And, but if women themselves have changed, it's not clear that submitting oneself to the character of women will have that long term civilizing effects or will even be like a prudent choice for a man. So, um, so while I think Marriage is part of the answer to solving the problem of the feminist sexual constitution. Marriage under the feminist sexual constitution is much more unstable than Gilder Mm -hmm. recognized. And women themselves are much less responsible, stable, and modest than Gilder recognized. So submitting to their so-called sexual superiority may not be a way out of the situation. So, you know, the, the honor that you need to give to Gilder is for his analysis of what a sexual constitution is and it's the, his beginnings of an analysis on that. Now, in his defense, I will say that, like, it would be all right to describe the problems of a sexual constitution that, that men, like, experience. And, uh, if, and that's what he limits his book to, but it really requires a twofold analysis in order to show what a solution is, because the changes that happen in women always have corresponding changes in men, and the other way around.
0: Hmm. Does, he, does Gilder um, is he, you know, it's called "Men in Marriage." So does he um, get into analysis of what it does, you know, under a feminist constitution, not only to the the two counterparts, but but to the family as a unit and even to, to children?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, it is that is part of his, uh, his take. Uh, he, he does try to provide a, a vision of what happens to the family. Um, but he's, he's much more interested in showing how men will have different options and different avenues for life after the family is unloosed and destroyed Uh, by the feminist constitution. Mm -hmm. So you might think of Gilder as something like this. Um, Daniel Patrick Moynihan wrote a report on the state of the black family in 1965 when the illegitimacy rate among black families was around 25%. And he said that this is the beginnings of a matriarchy in the black community. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lots of black boys and girls are going to be raised without fathers as we enable this through government policies and also just as the culture disintegrates the family, it's going to cause a huge dislocation, crime, lack of education, uh, achieve, uh, educational achievement, mass unemployment like these things are the future for the black uh, for blacks if the black family is destroyed. And Gilder comes around in 1972 and writes "Sexual Suicide," and he says, "Yeah, what Moynihan said is right, but it applies to all of America." Mm-hmm. And um, and and here's the implications of that kind of family, de- de- decentered family uh, in society. And he goes through several, you know, several chapters that are also very prescient. He really predicts the explosion mm-hmm. of the uh, the the gay liberation movement, and without steady families, men and women will turn to same sex relations, and he has a great chapter on that, which is under appreciated, I think, in the book. And he also has chapters on turning to crime and having uh, education kind of fall off the cliff for men, less so than for women, and so so I wouldn't say that. It's about the effect on children, but rather just its effect on male and female character is more of his theme. Because he takes the destruction of the family almost as a given. And uh and and so doesn't get into the, the changing family dynamics.
0: Hmm. Well one of, one of the other things you wrote, I mean this it, it sort of flows with this in in Gilder's Analysis of you know greater greater societal effects is you you had a piece at First Things back in May I think it was in the in the print edition as well um, called anti NATO engineering that was all about the uh, plummeting birth rates in South Korea and um, sort of sort of taking an axe to accepted or conventional theories about why that was. Um, and and saying there's more more to it than uh, a lot of the reporting was letting on even as it's been watching this this downfall for a while
1: yeah i mean the the theme here is essentially what is a post family future look like for countries and civilizations mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. children are at the center of family life. It's one of the real reasons for marriage, uh, is to have children. And if you're not gonna have children, fewer people will marry. And as fewer people marry, there'll be fewer children. There's a cycle. And, uh, and Korea is one of the places where this post-family revolution is most advanced. Uh, the birth rate in Korea is under 0.8 children per woman. And replacement is about 2.1 children per woman. And so the Korean population is really set to, you know, start in a death spiral uh, over the coming generations. There's very little appetite, it seems, to, uh, to change this. And and what I discovered when I looked into this, um, so, you know, one way to one way to think about it is, well, is the post-family future coming everywhere? I and mean, the birth rates everywhere are low. They're all below replacement. So if we go to Korea, we can see where this post-family future is most advanced. And we might be able to have some idea of what a post-family future will look like. And so I just went in, you know, and investigated how it happened in Korea, how – how fast it was. And it was actually very fascinating to me. Uh, Korea, of all the the countries that are now in the OECD, the uh, advanced kind of modernized countries of Asia and Europe, Korea had the highest birth rate in 1960. And now it has the lowest birth rate ever recorded in human history. So it's 70 years or so, mm-hmm. or I guess that's, Sixty years. Sorry, I'm a political philosophy guy. The numbers are all. <laughs> <awesome>. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm a lawyer. I don't do math. And uh, so 60 years later. So uh, I guess now we'd say two generations later, it's gone from the highest to the lowest. And part of it was very intentional um, that the government itself thought the key to modernizing was bringing down birth rates and urbanizing the population. So they implemented policies that really dishonored family life. They, they created penalties for uh, having more than two kids. Um, you could, but like you lose housing subsidies or wage subsidies, there's no more tax credits after two kids. Um, they, they really propagated contraception in ways that are very, um, I guess insidious is the way to think about it that they, they with international funding, helped establish these mother clubs all over the country where older women would teach younger women about the benefits of having fewer children. So your mom is telling the girls why not to have so many more children. And uh, and these things were very effective. Um, and, you know, they were, they were below replacement birth rates within a generation, like in the 80s. And so there was a real, as I say, a real intentional top-down effort to propagandize against having children. They had like slogans that were propagated in the country. Um, all to the effect, they're you know, like, uh, three, two is better than three. Um, and, uh, maybe stop at one. You know that's, and uh, you know we say uh, uh, things like uh, you know we have slogans for selling beer. A light beer is less filling. No, it tastes great. They had they had uh, better two than three when it comes to kids. And uh, I'm not saying it was on the tongue of every Korean woman, but these things were known and widely propagated. And as I say, it worked. And you know they they kept up this what we call antinatal engineering until the early nineties when they realized, well, this could go too far. So they started what you could call hungry level uh, subsidies in Korea, you know, not in the nineties, but in the aughts, late aughts, they started giving huge subsidies to people who'd have kids. They even put money behind um, programs to get people to become more interested in dating. And uh, so they have government-subsidized dating uh, in Korea, and it doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't work because the end result has been, and this is what really got me interested in the whole Korean thing uh, to begin with, is a huge division politically between men and women, where men voted for uh, the, the current president of South Korea, in large numbers, like a two to one type number, especially young men, maybe closer to three to one for young men, um, and women voted for the opposite party. And sexual relations was like an issue in the campaign. Should we keep all of these civil rights laws that favor South Korean women and disfavor men, or should we get rid of them? And like, that's the issue of the election. And so, if you if you destroy the the main way that men and women come together in personal life, uh, it may be that you end up with the battle of the sexes, but not like man versus woman in the streets with clubs or anything like that. But actually, in the realm of politics, and we've seen echoes of this happening now in America. Recent polls have shown this, and uh, you know, in one sense, you like to think that it's a good development in that it shows that men are coming to understand how the current order doesn't serve their interests, and they're looking to act to change the order. On the other hand, it probably is a sign of some monumental breakdown in the sexual constitution, so that men and women no longer, or fewer men and fewer women now have the incentive to come together in the, you know, the... Institution of marriage that is most likely to bridge the gaps between them. The result will be, of course, fewer kids and, uh, and, Mm -hmm. you know, a less bright future for any country that is experiencing that kind of battle of the sexes. So it's playing out in South Korea in ways that, uh, heaven forfend could presage what it'll look like all over Western Europe and, in the United States. And it Mm -hmm. certainly is happening in Western Europe. I mean, I'm planning on writing about this. Um, It's just hard to find good data on it. But, you know, a lot of these populist Mm -hmm. parties that are popping up in like Sweden, the Swedish Democrats, the Alternative for Deutschland in Germany, um, they have uh, disproportionate support among young men in those countries. And the left-wing parties say, the Greens, or uh, in Germany, uh, we will use that as an example, have way disproportionate uh, support from women and maybe from single women. That's the part I'm trying to find better data on. And uh, But I think it's almost certainly true because it's young women that are the backbone of those parties and marriage rates are very low among the young there. So, you know, so this battle of the sexes being waged politically is going to be, I think, a prominent fact uh, in the rest of my life. I'm 50. So the next 30 years, I expect that to be a real feature, not blue state, red state. It's actually men, women. And when that becomes the Hmm. the the field of play, I think that also will complicate the sexual constitution. Hmm.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's going to be tough to balkanize along gender lines as compared to red yeah, I don't know how, I mean, when you so, see me, yeah. it, work it, it can in some sense be done, but yes, the,
1: what's the session look like under that circumstance when you have sex really overlaid with, uh, with the political difference?
0: Yeah. When it's, and you, you alluded to something earlier too, that the, um, you know, I think a lot of people on the new right, you know, are fans of of at least at least what Hungary attempts to do on on this front. Um, but you you're making the point that I think I think others have mentioned as well, whether other economic policies or even ones dealing directly with family uh, promotion, that you can't just plop these these down um, when the forces are this deeply rooted and expect them to co- to offer a, a immediate corrective. Yeah, yeah and, I mean, I have um, written on this topic can just of Hungary's family
1: policies and first things in a couple other places. And uh, that is the point that I make that that family life. I mean, when you understand the sexual constitution, family life is a matter of honor. Economics is part of that. Like there can be economic systems and policies that honor the family more or honor the roles that foster the family more. But Hungary also has done a huge propaganda campaign on its popu- with its population promoting family life. So you walk into the Budapest airport and like we have those delta signs on each side of the gangway when you walk out. <laughs> Hungary has signs like family friendly Hungary. They have pictures of beautiful families with four kids and and you see this like advertised over the place um, so they they have done the opposite at this point in their history of what Korea did in the 60s and 70s. They're trying to actually show how the future of the nation and really maybe even the future of human happiness in this particular place depends on people putting the family near the center of their life. And that has coincided with the economic policies. So I think we always end up looking only at the economic policies without seeing it as a broader part of the sexual constitution. And that certainly is there in Hungary. And uh, so I think we should be paying more attention to that and less attention to the uh, economic things because the fact that you have to kind of band-aid with economic policies already shows that you have a kind of unfriendly sexual constitution. And let me just give an example of that from something I'm writing now. So the United States had, it was pretty commonly practiced before the 1960s, something that we call the family wage, where employers practiced through their like, hiring plans and through their um, compensation plans, the idea that we're going to pay men like their head of household so that they can, uh, so their wives don't have to work, especially when they have young children. Many companies would not hire women who had children under five because they thought that would be disruptive of the female role as mother. And in the first Civil Rights Act of of the 60s, it was the Equal Pay Act, where basically the family wage was declared illegal. Equal pay for equal work, sounds good. Who could be opposed to that? But that really assumes (laughs) that the economy is only about one thing, instead of about supporting people raising families as well as efficiencies and creating wealth. And, uh, and so this cliche, equal pay for equal work, everyone accepts. But like the best way to provide help for families is to have it kind of baked into the employment cake instead of like making it illegal to help families when you're a employer. And then coming in later and trying to make up for that with some sort of kind of broad um, government policy of subsidies for you know loan forgiveness or housing, and uh, because the other one is very narrowly tailored to those who actually are heads of households and are at, you know so um, so yeah like I, I do think that economics is part of any sexual constitution. But honor is more important uh, than the economic stuff.
0: And this is something else you wrote for American Reformer a while, a while back. I can't remember how many months ago um, was was really addressing, too. I mean, if you're going to solve the cultural issues, even this gender divide in the in the sexual constitution. I mean, you obviously can't neglect um, education. At a young age, of the proper roles and, and operation of, uh, well, roles as individuals in society, but ultimately uh, geared towards uh, the family. Um, if policy is supposed to support that, and as good citizens, supposed to participate in that, for the sake of the longevity of the the polity. So that this was another piece you wrote. Um, I think it was teaching sex and gender rightly, something like that, um, at a, at American Reformer, um, and w- was hitting it from that angle. Yeah, as well.
1: I mean. It's not clear to me that uh, Christian parents understand the pressures their daughters are under. And uh, in in fact, I'm quite certain that they don't understand. Um, And you've seen it in some statistics. Uh, There was one survey out, I can't remember who did it, that showed that for the first time, young men are going to church more often than young women. And, uh, uh but you also, it. you know, you see it in the, the support for liberal and conservative, um, parties among young kids. And, you know, the, the real purpose of our sexual constitution is to win the allegiance of women. And, uh, and they do that by stigmatizing anything that would suggest that perhaps someday maybe young girls might consider, if they want, to be mothers. Like, if you say that, then you will say, well, all you want to see me is barefoot and naked in the kitchen? Not naked in the kitchen. Barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. (laughs) Barefoot and naked in the kitchen is a different article, probably. And uh, (laughs) um, and, uh, and so no one leans into the idea that actually – encouraging motherhood in, in young girls is a cultural project
0: mm-hmm.
1: that it used to be that a lot of things pointed them in that direction. Well, now almost nothing points them in that direction so that if you ask girls what they want to be, they never say a mother or very infrequently. And if you do, and if they do say mothers, people look at you like, well, have you considered a career first? What are you going to do if that, if that collapses? And this affects Every institution that we think we own, because it's difficult to bring up the priority of motherhood and the character that corresponds to that in any institution that involves college, careers, or future-oriented preparation. So I'm the chairman of a classical Christian school, um, and uh, and I've been kind of watching this. Uh, problem bubble up. The uh, American associate, Association of Classical Christian Schools is run by a friend of mine, Dave Goodwin, and they did a survey years ago uh, to show how the students of classical Christian schools are different from the schools of normal Christian schools and public schools. And they are different in many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, they attend church more frequently than both public schooled and ACSI schools, which are just the normal Christian schools. Uh, They have a stronger sense of vocation. That is, they see what they're doing as part of God's providential plan for them. But the one thing that they all look the same on is the number of kids they're having and the age of marriage. Now, like, if these institutions, if these schools, if our churches are going to be countercultural institutions in some way, they need to like show their difference in many ways. And one of them is probably that they would honor motherhood and have bigger families. And so um, I think that you know that that institutions need to start recognizing the threat uh, that the feminist default position poses to them in the long term and actually teach against that feminist default position. The problem being, as I mentioned before, that any teaching against the feminist position, that career should be first for both men and women, is uh, will immediately be stigmatized and greeted with guffaws, uh, even by people that you think are on your side. Um, another thing I will say on this is that it's easy. Every institution uh, can rail on boys or men you guys need to get better. You guys are irresponsible. You can say whatever you want about a guy and parents will come up to you and say, thank you for, you know, helping my boy to become a man.
0: Yeah. That's why Mark Driscoll is successful.
1: And, uh, and, and I'm not saying that it's all as bad as Mark Driscoll. Um, Like a lot of it's true. And like, and, when our teachers, for instance, teach the Odyssey, they can teach about the importance of uh of you know, of, of wanting to go home uh to Odysseus, right? Uh and and it's all right. But if you try the same thing with girls, even in a very subtle way, you'll be greeted with much different um response. Mm. Who are you to X? And, uh, and so it's a real, it's a real challenge, uh, to any institution that wants to be countercultural to challenge subtly the, you know, the presuppositions of modern feminism, even in the most modest way. As I say, my position is not that women should be mothers and, but rather that they should maybe someday perhaps consider if they want being a mother. Like that would move the needle in an incredible direction uh, if we got to that to that point,
0: yeah yeah, it's like the uh you know <laughs> you'll you'll see these memes go around of everyone realizing you know Robin Williams is the bad guy in dead poet society, and uh, it's the same thing with like uh, Julia Roberts and Mona Lisa' smile you know she's like taking all the girls away from the. The wife training at Wellesley. And, and this is, you realize she's the bad, bad guy. Yeah, of the day actually. yeah, no, it's true. Well, that shows
1: how deep the it's, propaganda has the, been for a long time on these matters. And, you know, like, you, yeah. you can't, yeah. like, I don't blame families really for this. I mean, it, it really does require lots of leadership on these matters. Um, your normal family, uh, just going along with the drift of society. Uh, just doesn't – they, they want their daughter to be successful. And uh, I guess I saw something yesterday about a new move, a new version of Snow White that's coming out. Have you seen this, Damon? And, yeah. uh, and yeah, yeah. The, the, the young lady who wrote it said, you know, this this Snow White's not going to be like the last Snow White. She's not going to need a Prince Charming to, to uh, wake her up or come right. and save her. Like, she's going to realize her own real potential for leadership. And I was going – right so funny like it people eventually get sick of this maybe i guess not
0: yeah i I don't know if it was a battle on b headline or not or maybe it was just people making fun of it It was like i guess in this one then she just stays dead (laughs) because if no prince comes no she's probably going to be woken up by a college (laughs) professor (laughs) (laughs) oh man yeah um no, I think I think I mean a big point that you're you're raising that I think it's especially for you know average Christians, lay people, uh, trying to raise families and everything is to realize you know this stuff is not uh, accidental. It's um, you know huge campaigns, decade long campaigns, whether in South Korea or here, have have shaped the pathologies that are now governing family life. And even for Christian schools, if you're getting um, you know a better education and uh, you're staying in church, you're still affected by. You know the water you're swimming in, it's very hard to get out of even the ambitions that are put forward as being honorable um, to you, even if you're, you're a dedicated Christian. Um, and I, I, I think yeah, that's I mean, absolutely we, true. We uh, have uh, a yep.
1: sexual constitution. The idea that people are simply free to choose is one of these conservative popes. Mm-hmm. We have a constitution that shapes our desires, period. And uh, it's the question of which mm-hmm. way they're going to be shaped. And uh, and I think once that reality is discovered, then like a lot of doors open up. But uh, conservatives have relied on the idea that they can opt out of things, opt out of bad schools, uh, they can opt out of bad churches for a long time without recognizing that all of these institutions are really shaped and have to uh, have a countervailing shaping aspiration if they're going to actually accomplish their missions.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, well, speaking of speaking of comp- accomplishing uh, the mission, you were you were the star of an excellent piece of journalism at the New Republic about a, a, seven days ago, about a week ago. And uh, I did I did a, a quick search on the article and your name was used 15 times in the article. And so the uh, the journalist seemed very, very interested in your work um, and was, was concerned that you like to use words like manliness a lot. Um, <laughs> so I assume you saw this because everyone else did. Uh, how did it feel to be the star in the, the latest hit job on the Claremont Institute? Well,
1: I mean, I, I think you're giving me more credit uh, than I deserve as far as being the star. Mike Anton is always the star <laughs> of the the, uh, well, that's true. That's true. 93 essay yeah. that he wrote before the election of Donald Trump. Um, but uh, but I, I have been featuring more prominently in these things since I've taken on the role down here in Florida as, uh, as a kind of uh, not liaison with the Florida government or anything like that, but just uh, uh, an advocate for the positions that Claremont has with respect to mm-hmm. shoring up red states. And uh, I'm doing that not only in Florida, but in other uh, other state capitals. Um, yeah, no, it felt great. Um, the The thing that always features prominently in uh, in these hit pieces is the speech that I gave at the National Conservatism Conference in 2020 on how feminism undermines great nations. The thesis of that talk was that great nations need great families and you can't have great families when feminism is your predominant um, ideology. Now, no one ever really touches that thesis because of course feminism has always really sought to remake and undermine family life. So uh, they go after some of the subsidiary points, one of which is that it's not clear to me, in fact, it's, uh, it's not clear to me that feminism has made women happier And uh, and we have a lot of policies that are embedded in our universities that uh, that are based on the assumption that if men and women want different things, that there must be discrimination going on and that we should stop entertaining that idea. So I can be more particular there. Uh, I said that. that modern women are more medicated, meddlesome, and quarrelsome than they need to be, which is uh, <laughs> one of the famous lines from my talk. I guess it's famous, it's famous among 12 it's people, line. but um, I think that's like I can easily prove that, and I don't have any real problems uh, defending it. There was one study put out by the University of Minnesota uh, University System during COVID or right before COVID that suggested that 46% of female undergraduates in the Minnesota system have been seeking psychiatric help or were on psychotropic drugs uh, during the last year, which is a pretty high number. And I'm certain it's higher than it was in 1950 or 1930. Um, there are also you know, uh, just measures of subjective happiness uh, studies that have been put out, and they've actually kind of stopped doing as a result of the results, which show that women are less happy subjectively, just according to their own reporting, uh, now than they were in 1970, which is really before w- when the uh, feminist rubber started hitting the road. So I'm I'm perfectly happy to like defend the idea that feminism. Uh, has undermined female happiness. I have more to say on that in my book, The Recovery of Family Life, which was published in 2020. And um, and so I feel good about that. The, the issue uh, having to do with uh, equity programs, uh, especially in engineering, uh, but also in law school and medical school, one of the great, um, I don't know, uh, conquests of the feminists Uh, agenda has been to get to the point where doctors are 50% female, uh, medical school students are 50% female, and and lawyer, uh, law school students are 50% or more female. And that's been an aspiration, and they have the same aspiration for engineering, where it's still something like 70-30, 80-20, depending on the subfield in engineering. And I just think, like, all of those equity programs are just bad and shouldn't be done. Uh, I'm not saying that universities should close their doors uh, to women, but I think they should not feel guilty for having male-dominated majors. They don't feel guilty for having female-dominated majors. And in fact, men have been chased out of elementary ed school over the last 40 years. I mean, it used to be that you actually would have about 20% of elementary ed teachers be men. Now it's like 90 and getting lower. And no one complains about that. It's a female-dominated industry, we'll call it, and it's becoming more female-dominated. It might be bad that it's more female-dominated. I think it probably is. Uh, But I think you're not gonna do anything about that unless you restructure what they teach uh, in elementary ed and what their assumptions are. Whereas engineering is still a pretty solid profession and is still a pretty solid major with real standards. And, uh, and I think they should try not to transform themselves. And I say not feel guilty about being male dominated. So I think I put that maybe in an infelic- infelicitous way in the speech, um, or at least I could have put it better. But, uh, but that's you know, the, the gist of what I was saying. But as I say, the main point is great nations need great families, great families can't be built on the basis of feminism. I've seen no one challenge that kind of assumption or that that framework for uh, on the speech. And uh, until someone takes that on, I consider all of their stuff to be irrelevant pot shots.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, no, I, th- I don't think they did much damage to you in the hit piece or any other hit piece they've had. This is not the first one. Um, but I did, it did occur to me when you were talking about, you know, the way objectively feminism's made, well, objectively and subjectively, women less happy. That the, you know, it's such projection um, that the, that they're really offering when, you know, the, the image that's presented that they're reacting against of, you know, the sort of Betty Draper like miserable at home, self medicated, um, you know, hating her life is actually what what they are experiencing, and they're projecting it back into. You know the, the last generation so that they can revolt against it but they really are turning out exactly like the the image they've created to yeah to rebel the, against
1: you know i it seems to me and i have a lot more evidence of this stuff in the book and the, the studies that i'm relying on to say what i'm saying are in the book that about three out of four women would rather prioritize being mothers in their lives which isn't to mm-hmm. say that they don't want to work uh or they don't want to do community service it's to say that, especially when their kids are young, like under twelve, they would like to not be under the pressures of having to work. And uh, the feminist movement considers that to be a changeable number. And the problem is that it's not really that changeable a number. It's pretty universal. It exists in Sweden. The the, the you know the the same. Breakdown you can find in country after country, but what has changed is what people are allowed to think and act on, and uh, according to the predominant sexual constitution. And when those women become feminists, they're at nature, they're at war with um, their inclinations or nature. And uh, and Mm -hmm. I think that like explains a lot of the less happiness. And a lot of the regret that people will come to have when they go through their 40s and they realize that they can no longer have kids, and, like, that's going to be part of our future, too. Like, it's something that really has to be thought about, this post-family future. And uh, the Mm -hmm. speech at NatCon was, like, pointing in some of those directions. Uh, But I know politically uh, the post-family future is going to be... uh, Compromising the ability to actually
0: build a family future. So, hmm. well, I think that's a uh, you know it's a bit of a downer, but that's a good place to to leave it right there. Um, Scott, thanks for coming on and talking about some of your some of your recent work, and um, we look forward to to seeing more from you at American Reformer and elsewhere. So everybody, I don't know if you do Twitter, have a Twitter, right? Twitter account I mean, at you.
1: Scott Banner. Uh, I have yeah. someone run it. Okay. Uh, I have been told by one of my students that I have a soul for Twitter, and uh, and I slapped him. Uh, so <laughs> I've tried I've tried to stay off Twitter uh, so it doesn't consume my life.
0: Well, that's that's probably a good call. Um, <laughs> anyway, people can find ways to follow Scott <laughs> through the internet. Um, he's always always pumping out great great pieces all over the place. Um, So we appreciate your time uh, this morning. It was my my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the American Reformer podcast. Make sure to visit us online at americanreformer.org. That's americanreformer.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at amreformer.